Alright, John 6, 41 through 71. And tonight we'll be talking about uh, Jesus, uh, the bread of life. You know, uh, a lot of people have a lot of different types of problems with the gospel. Um, the various issues people have with the gospel, it makes some people stay away. Um, it makes some people walk away who have been near and left. And it seems to me that it happens for a couple of different reasons. It happens because people don't believe the truth of the gospel or they don't truly understand the person of Christ. And here in chapter 6, we see Jesus really gets a teaching what the heart of the gospel is. If you remember from last week's study in uh, the first part of the middle part of the chapter, in verse 32, Jesus begins telling them, and says, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And he goes on and redirects them away from their concern for things like food and miracles and things that concern this life and rather redirects them towards the food that's going to satisfy their soul, toward that food that's going to provide them entrance into eternal life, which is what they really should be looking for if they're coming to Jesus because that's his main purpose he shares and we're going to see in this chapter as well. He reveals that his role as a bread of life, uh, what it is in the first part of this chapter. And he also talks about his mission, which is, of course, to fulfill the Father's will of providing salvation for anyone that wants to get it. And that the result of that salvation is the resurrection from the dead. And we're going to get into that as we go on uh, this evening. And so as we look at this next chunk from chapter uh, 641 all the way to verse 71, we're going to see that Jesus uh, teaches them and really is teaching us through the questions and the concerns and even the fights that people are having about him and, and the gospel itself. And he really gets to saying three distinct things. Okay, The first thing in verses 41 through 51 is that Jesus deals with the question, who am I? Right? Because their question is, well, who is this guy? We thought we knew him. In verses 52 through 59... <clears throat> Um, Jesus deals with the question of the veracity of what he's saying. Is what he says true? They they struggle with that that question. You know, how can this be? How can this guy give us his flesh to eat? And in verses sixty through seventy one, we see that Jesus then turns to the disciples, the ones that have been following him closest during all this time, and then asks them, "So, do you believe what I'm saying? Well, what do you think about all of this?" Let's read this real quick. Verse forty one says, "The Jews then complain about him because he said." I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. 
This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that shall give us get, that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, Well, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the first day, at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, Well, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. And so we start in verses 41 through 51 as he deals with their question of, of who is he. Notice first in verse 41 uh, and into 42 what the Jews' complaint is. And it was this complaint. We know him. They relied on their own resources. Notice the source, of course, of their complaint is Jesus' claim that he is the bread of life that comes down from heaven. And that word complaint, it, it just means murmur and just, it's almost like onomatopoeia in Greek. It's like the, the buzzing of bees, this complaining sound that you hear out in crowds oftentimes when somebody says something a little crazy. And so they're, they're, they're all talking amongst themselves, their whole issue is how can this guy be that bread of life? How can this guy be a, a divine saying that he comes from heaven and that he has heavenly resources that supply eternal life. So that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense because we know better, because we know where he came from. And you know, Jesus doesn't, doesn't mince his words here. He's pretty plain with what he's saying, saying, I came from heaven. If you want to live forever, it's got to be through me. And then they, that's why they really started freaking out. It's not that they didn't quite understand that. They understood that principle. They didn't like it very much is why they're upset. Because he's claiming, well, I'm the, I'm the giver of life. If you want life, it's got to be here. And of course, they only rely on their own resources and trying to understand him. And I think it's really more of like an excuse. But they talk about it and they say, well, you know, we know his dad, Joseph, right? He's, he's from here. He's, we're in Galilee. 
We know his dad and we know his mother. How could this guy say he has a heavenly origin? And you see, that that's the problem with a lot of people, is that willful deception of limiting themselves to only understanding the things of this world. They never, ever stop to consider other things. And they uh, ultimately, I think a lot of people don't want to, right? A lot of people don't want to stop and consider things like death and hell and heaven and the fact that there is a right and a wrong because they make them uncomfortable. And that's exactly what the gospel does. You know, it, it hits each and every one of us right between the eyes. And, and Jesus does exactly that here. In the next couple of verses here, he rebukes him. But notice that as he rebukes him about this, it's rooted in the word. Okay, he doesn't just slap them around and you know call them names, but and he speaks to him in verse uh, forty-three. First, he asserts his authority and says, "Do not murmur among yourselves. Stop it." And it's, a, it's a command there. He says, let, 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 "Let's talk about this. We're not going to have these questions going on in the corners of, of the room. We're going to bring it out in the open." You know, when, when I'm teaching a class with the kids, you know, and they start, you know, you know, or things. They say, "What's going on?" Like I was just telling them, I said, no, 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 you can say something like that in here. It's going to have to be for everybody. And all of a sudden, they have nothing to say, right? Um, Jesus wanted to bring it out in the open, and not as a way of humiliation, but really as a way of instruction, because he uses this in order to teach the people, which is where he's going. The, the whole feeding of the multitude was all a tool to be able to now teach the people what's that principle. What am I really showing you by doing this? That yes, I love you. And let's, yes, I want to provide for you. But let's talk about what really matters. Let's talk about the real food and the real need that you have. So Jesus then confronts them with the idea that only people who have known the Father have been drawn by the Father can come to Jesus. Okay, And that word draw there means to um, draw by some kind of power, to lead, to have this this this. It, this impulse to go do something. And it's, and it's, it's an interesting word. It's used to have the dragging of nets, you know, to catch a fish. Okay? So he says, only if you're drawn of the Father do you have the ability to follow Jesus. If the Father reaches out to you and initiates. And you see, that's kind of the order of things. When we talk about salvation, is the Lord initiates contact with us. He's out there and he's throwing, uh, throwing out a seed and, you know... Calling and we respond to it. Okay. So then that one must be called by God in order to come to Christ because of that role that he has as the initiator. And he says, so if you've been called and you come, he says, I will raise him up at the last day so that the person will participate in the resurrection of life. And remember when he's talking about the last day here, um, he's talking about at the end when the final judgment is held and, and God sets up his his kingdom, and they understood what he meant when he talked about the last day, when, when God would judge the living and the dead, and people would, in this case, uh, participate in the resurrection unto life, okay, which we know the people who have died in the faith, and then they have the resurrection unto life in the glorified bodies. And, and made whole there. It's kind of wild stuff here. That's really what Jesus is talking about, that following Christ allows one to partake in this. And that this resurrection is something that is under his power. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on. But notice what the implication of all this is. So why would Jesus be telling them this? The implication is simple. It's that they, the ones that are murmuring, have not been drawn by the Father. They have not been called in. You see, and we know this because of their response. Okay, 
It's their response to it. They're like, no. They're not heeding the spirit because they're looking at through carnal means. And of course, they're not the only ones in this section that are subject to this. And this is a continuing theme in John as Jesus says wilder and wilder things to people and people continue to look up and say, what is this? What does this mean? How does this work? And other people are like, this is the truth. <laughs> We're going after this. And it's exactly what we experience now. I mean, we look at this and things just jump off the page because the Spirit's dealing with us. And then you talk to somebody who doesn't know the Lord and you're like, this is, and, it, and this is awesome. And they're like, huh? <laughs> they look at you sideways like you're nuts. Notice Jesus, uh, his rebuke is, is rooted in Scripture here in verse 45. Uh, how he says that he quotes the prophets. And this, of course, comes from Isaiah 54 where it says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. That comes from Isaiah 54, 13. Okay. And so he's saying that God himself would reach out and speak to people, which is uh, a very personal thing when you stop and think about it, that God reaches out and speaks to people. And you're talking about people who have been grown up in this Jewish faith. You don't approach God in that way. You know, God, even God speaking to people, there's always these intermediaries everywhere, but the very idea that the Lord says, no, no, I will speak to you. That's why it's an amazing thing in the prophecies when he says, you're going to be a nation that's unto me. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. There's this, they totally miss this, this closeness that they would have, this relationship that God had planned for them. It's kind of like what it says in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. It says this, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And this really is what Jesus is ushering in here, and what we partake in, and will be ultimately fulfilled in eternity. You know, God himself would teach them according to the prophecies. And this is, of course, speaking to the Father, teaching them. And this all happens, of course, through the word. Because how does God speak to people, right? He's not speaking to people audibly, not in a widespread kind of a way. And so that this happens through the word as people get to know God. And that's how they would know the Lord, by knowing his word. So that if they knew him, notice the, uh, the corollary. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, he says, comes to me. So that if they've learned from the Father, they recognize the Son. They know exactly who He is. You ever know somebody and, and you know like the Father and then you meet the Son but not knowing it's the Father? But then you're like, wait a second, there's this connection here. You, you can tell just by the look, just by the mannerisms, by the way that they express themselves. It's the trademarks. And of course, if they know the Father, they know that Jesus is the Son and, and it's plain to them. This is what drew the apostles you know, when they go and they call each other, they, you know, we found the Son of Man, you know, and they start freaking out. And, and, and they go and they see if it's true, some of them with skepticism, and some of them run after it. You know, the idea there that it says that they hear and that they learn are two distinct ideas. Um, hearing, of course, is the physical act of hearing, but the learning is it's different. It's a voluntary act, is the way it's described here in the Greek. And, and that to learn really means to have taken it in and to shown obedience to what you've heard. Okay, that's the actual learning in the same way that 
we all suffered through math classes and they showed us something. And then we saw if we learned when they gave us that homework or that test. And we're like, oh, man, I hope that's right. You know, you're hoping there's a multiple choice. And then sometimes it's not. (laughs) So then to have learned is that obedience to the word. And of course, we know that the word leads one to Jesus. Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so this is how uh, Jesus is saying that God deals with people. Okay, So then they should know who he is if they do know the Father. And of course, these people claim to be faithful, no doubt. And notice Jesus points to his unique uh, position here in verse 46. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So he says, hey, he says, none of you guys have seen him in the way that I have. He says, I have been there face to face. No man has done this. You know, Jesus is the one who has perfect knowledge of him. So that then he can give that to the people. You know, it's interesting when, um, when we really like our, our fans of a person, some sports figure or celebrity, and then we, we find out that somebody we know, like, knows them. We're pretty quick to like say things or like ask questions like, oh, you know, are they nice? You know, are they, are they really that short? You know, and all these things. And we want to know about them. And we have the son of God there in the flesh. And people aren't asking him about God. People are saying, hey, well, you know, Moses gave us manna. What are you going to give us? <laughs> it's just they got it all wrong. They didn't see that Christ is the only way that they only hope they have of seeing and knowing God. That he's the door like he'll talk about later on in John chapter 10. In fact, in John 14, 9, Jesus uh, says, Have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So then how can you say, show us the Father? You know, even among the apostles, they had a hard time with things. They, they didn't quite get things all the time. And we're the same way. You know, we, uh, we have a hard time a lot of times. And Jesus gets more specific here after he rebukes them and says, no, 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 you guys, you guys are looking at this the wrong way because you guys have been off this, this whole time. He says, I'm the way to everlasting life. Look in verse 47. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So it's then faith. And Jesus leads that everlasting life. And of course, we know that most assuredly is that amen, amen. It's, he says it twice. You know that it's true. And the idea of belief isn't just some passing um, belief, but it is uh, a real, genuine belief. In this case, saving faith. So that anyone who has this type of saving faith of, as Jesus, as the Messiah, has that eternal life that does not end. And it's not this... It's not this um, cognitive thing like we said but really belief is exhibited in one's life that's how you know when someone believes something it is evident and we we know this from this is something that jesus talked about here this belief is something that's happened in the past and it's continuing to happen even now it's kind of like the tense that he's using there and so he says most surely i say to you he who believes has believed believes now continues to believe in me is that person is the one who has everlasting life because jesus isn't worried about things that concern death because that's what he's here to vanquish and then he he says things as plain as he can once again reiterating what he said back in uh 
in the previous section. And he says, I am the bread of life. Now, if you remember, this is the first of about eight different I am statements that Jesus um, proclaims about himself in the book of John. Okay, So when he says, I am the bread of life, I am the, the one who nourishes, I am the one who gives life. And this is the emphasis here that he gives life, of course, as he's consumed by the believers. And we understand this is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. He's speaking of his atoning death on the cross. And that as he does this, he's fulfilling that, that role of that paschal lamb, once and for all, that it has, whose blood does away with our sin, makes us pure and righteous before the Lord. And he takes that role as, as the advocate for each and every one of us. Even as we continue to, to struggle and mess up, and the Lord is in the midst of that, in the midst of our lives. So then he tells them, I'm the bread of life. But notice he contrasts this whole idea with what they were thinking. He says, no, you guys want manna. He says, but look, I am the true manna because I'm the one that gives life. And not just to some, I give life to everybody. Look what he says here in verse 49. He points out that Jesus is way better than whatever Moses gave. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. It was just bread. It couldn't do anything for you. Yeah, it satisfied you for a day, but that's it. You know, we remember that if they kept the manna from one day to the next, it's spoiled. Except for the Sabbath, curiously enough, you know. And that day was all right. And the other ones, you know, it, it, didn't, it didn't work. Because it was passing, it was fleeting. But one partakes of Christ. But once, right? That's all it takes. And that's all they need. And they continue on in that. And they abide in that. And this is what he's pointing out to. He says, you know, put, you need to understand the things that have happened in your history and put things in their proper place. That all of these things, they're speaking about me is what he's telling them. That manna, that's me. He says, that, that lamb, that's me. Everything, it's me. It's all pointing forward. So that just like the writer of Hebrews declares in so many words that Jesus is better. In this instance, that he's better than the bread that fell from heaven because he prevents that spiritual death, which is the death that we all want to avoid. Because that physical death, we can bank on that. It's going to come unless the Lord comes back before, but we, we understand that. But that spiritual death, that's what we're concerned with because that's permanent. You see, Jesus, he, notice he says he's better because he's the bread that comes from heaven. So he is not an earthly type of a person or a bread, if you will, here uh, to follow the metaphor. But rather, he's truly what they need. If their concern is eternal, which is what it should be, which is what the Lord encourages all of us to focus on, then he's the one that you got to go to. He's the source. And notice the scope of his work. He says he, he came that they may, people may eat of it and not die. Okay, So that all who eat of it will not die. You see... God is not restrictive in his plan of salvation. Rather, God wants anyone and everyone who can to partake of the free gift of salvation and rejoice with him in eternity. You know, we don't, we don't choose who to share with. We, we share with whoever will listen because we're eager that people would join us in this endeavor. 
You know, man, man doesn't have to die if they take that free gift. And, and this really is what Jesus is showing them about himself. He says, this is there. This is for all of you. And that this life only comes through my death, he points out here. Okay. In verse 51, he says, So then I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So then that he is distinct in this other way and that he is living. And that word living means to have power in and of itself. Okay. It's the exact same word that he uses when he's talking to the Samaritan woman and talks about offering her living water. And she's like, well, where is this water? So I don't have to draw. He says, oh, if you knew. You know, if you only knew. And then when she understood her, she's like, well, what does she do? She ran out and she talked to everybody she could. Hey, come see this guy. I knew everything about me. He, he's it. And people came and the Lord used her. So then he is alive in that his benefits flow out. The benefits of, of him are eternal and they flow out of him. And that they don't fade. Okay? Because he is one who does not fade. Even though he dies, we know that he lives again and he continues to live even to this day. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a living God. That's something that comes up over and over again in the Old Testament. And it's interesting that you know in the Gospel, we don't see it much. We see it a couple times in the book of John, but it's not something that's often um, used as a phrase here. And notice he says that the access to this is through his body. He says, so then the bread that he gives, he says, it's my flesh. So lest they forget, he's saying, my body needs to be consumed. And when he's talking about his flesh here being consumed, of course, we know he's talking not of cannibalism, which is what freaks them out, but rather that his body is going to be broken. And we know this, you know, thinking back to communion, which is a reminder of these things. So uh, some people get a little weird when they're teaching this and they start to get to the point where they start saying, well, you know, if you don't do communion, you know, you're not, you don't get to go to heaven. Sorry which is not what it's teaching at all. So don't let anybody tell you that. Um, they've really got to twist things around. Um, and so Jesus says that his flesh is something that's given up for the entire world, he says. He says, I give that up for the life of the world so that anyone can be saved. Okay? It's an open invitation, even for the ones who murmur, you know, even, even for them, because they don't have to stay in that state. You know, when we share with people, do we make sure to explain to them who the person of Christ is? Do we make sure to make clear to them, hey, you know, Jesus, he loves you. He died for you because you got sin in your life and it's got to be dealt with. And we have to be clear about these kinds of things. We can't just kind of, you know, uh, hint at things and like, you know, well, you know, being a Christian is a good thing. You know, we, we use all of these other terms except for what the gospel says and and it's foolish of us. He's pretty clear about how he saves here and that it happens through him and his death and that that's the cost of our sin. And that's what they needed to see. And that's what we see. And that's what, what draws us near to him. So then is our faith founded on him, on the person of Christ, on his death and his resurrection and the fact that we get to be made new See, the problem is when people try to understand the things of God through their own humanity and they filter things through that lens and it just corrupts things all the time. And this is what stands in the way of them in, in this next section here. Notice, they re, uh, is it true? Their quarrel is how? Uh, how can this guy give us his flesh? Okay. See, the reality is that what Jesus 
said, it's beyond their grasp. It's beyond their grasp because they do not believe. Okay? And this is a disagreement they're having. The word quarrel there is to have a dispute. So that a lot of them thought that he meant he would literally give them his flesh to eat. And there were others that were kind of like, well, I don't think that's what he means. And so they had this, this back and forth here about what, what does he mean, what does he not mean. And it's really similar to Nicodemus in, in John 3, 4. It's similar to the woman at the well in John four eleven, where they both look at things and they don't get it at first. Jesus says, well, unless you're born again, so can I enter the womb? You know, Give me that water. And they both have that same reaction. First Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You know, a lot of people can't accept the free gift of salvation because fill in the blank. Because there's whatever is there that they want more, that they cannot let go. That is blinding them to the truth. And that's where these people are at. Whether it was their pride as individuals, whether it was a sin that they had in their life, everyone's in a different place. But each person guaranteed that says, well, I don't understand this, I can't understand this, it's because they didn't want to. Because that's the spiritual reality of things. We understand that as believers, we have that volition. that We're able to respond to that call. So Jesus said then, accepting his sacrifice was a necessary thing to do if you're going to have eternal life. He says in verse 53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So he, he doubles down here and says, you got to partake of the death of me. Not only you, don't, you have to drink my blood too. And that must have really rubbed them the wrong way. First they're thinking, well, eating people, you can't deny the blood. The blood is sacred. The blood has the life in it. You know, they can't even eat the blood of the animals. I'm saying to drink his blood. They're, they're not happy at all. He says, if you want that life, that eternal life. That word life there in the Greek is the word zoe. And um, it means that it, it, it's a life of one who's put their trust in Christ. That after the resurrection, all the things that he promised are going to come to pass. That we're going to be made perfect. That we're going to know him in the same way that he knows us. And it's going to last for all eternity. So he's saying, you have to take in all of this. You have to identify with my death if you want to have eternal life. And of course, we know the symbolism that's true for us in the act of communion in Matthew 26 as Jesus had that last supper with them. Um, when he told them as they were eating, he takes that bread, he breaks it and blesses it, and he gives it to them and he says, take, eat, this is my body. And then he takes a cup and gives thanks and he gives to them and says, drink. From it, all of you. This is the exact same thing. Is my body going to be broken? It's amazing. Nobody, nobody realized it was there sitting there, right? And he's saying this, and they just didn't get it. And you know, they didn't have the spirit yet. They didn't have that discernment yet. We know that anything that came to them was because the spirit directly spoke to them. So then, um, he says they have to identify with him, and the same is true for us on a daily basis. We have to identify with the with the death of Jesus. Okay? Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 
I'm not saying you should be saved every single day. You're saved once and for all, okay? But that you need to be committed each and every day is an entirely different thing, okay? And that your life is one that bears out the death of Christ every day is a, it has to be a present reality. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that's what it means to partake in his death. That we understand that we've given up all our rights to this life because we want the next life and that we're instruments for him here to allow him to use us and do what he wants in us and through us. So then are we new? Is he living in us daily? You know, I often wonder what other people would say. Sometimes I get a little nervous when I start to think about what other people would say about me. and uh, It's a scary thing. Notice that Jesus uh, tells him and makes clear that, that he has power over death. So then that whoever eats of his flesh and drinks his blood, he says, will have eternal life and will be raised up on, on the last day. It's, he's talking in the present. It's, it's this continual active eating and drinking. It's really talking about that he's going to talk about in a second, that abiding nature of having a relationship with God, something that is consistent. You're not married some days and then others you are. Once you're married, you're married until you're not married. And that's the way it works. And so then he's saying you partake. He says, and then I'm going to take care of that, that life. I'm going to be the one that makes sure that you get to conquer death is a wild thing i still don't understand all of that i know it's true but i'm sure the people that saw lazarus walk out of that grave right they must uh that must have just fried their brain see so then while jesus is saying this and this is repulsive to the jews other people see this idea and uh and they're thinking well this we don't like this because He's saying he's the only way. So while they're stuck on this legal aspect, there are other people that would hear this, and even people today that say, like, well, how can you say Jesus is the only way? And this is an issue with people because it's exactly what Jesus is saying, that salvation is only through him. You see, we don't have any liberty to give people any other way but him. That, that's it. That's what we understand. We believe based on Scripture. And that's what we're bound to share so then his power over death knows it also only comes because he dies because then he is resurrected without that resurrection that that conquering of death doesn't ever occur okay and so this is an important thing here that jesus is talking about for for the future notice he talks about how that this death not only brings about life for people in eternity he says but it brings about a relationship he says, for my, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. So that as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. So he's saying then, me, my blood, my flesh, he says, that's the real food. That's the thing that really feeds you once and for all, spiritually satisfies you. That's what he's talking about. Getting that satisfaction. Because that's what we come to God for. Because we know that nothing else was going to satisfy. That this is where it's all at. 
See, where do we go to get fed? Sometimes we read and we're good about that. Sometimes we go to get fed in other ways. You know, sometimes and there's nothing necessarily wrong and we listen to worship music, but sometimes we start to substitute that for spending real honest to goodness time with the Lord, in which case that's, that's a problem. Sometimes we think that because we spoke to Christians today that, you know, that was good enough. <laughs> I think God was there. Two or more are gathered. All of a sudden we remember scripture, right? But where do we go to get fed? We only get fed in him. You know, re- reading the Gospels is a good thing. Keeping a finger in there every single day, it's a really, really good thing. So have you ever gone any stretch of time without having got, got into the gospel? And then you get to it, you're like, oh my God, what have I been doing? Well, I haven't been reading this every single day. And especially the gospel of John, it's, it's just awesome stuff. But notice that this abiding relationship comes about because the, uh, we get to partake in his death here. And that word abide is a, is a word that's pretty unique to John here in the New Testament. And it means to dwell uh, as if you were dwelling within with somebody, okay, in this close relationship. So it's, it's this continual influence um, by God to us, okay? So then, as believers, we have this relationship with Christ. And of course, we know it's through the Holy Spirit. So that partaking of the sacrifice moves us into this relationship where we are as close to Him is we will ever be to anybody. Because that's the nature of the relationship that we're striving for with him. You know, John talks about this um, to some extent in in First John. But before we jump into that, Jesus talked about later on in, in the Gospel of John, John 15, verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And of course, we understand that that metaphor is talking about us getting all of our resources, all our strength, all of our nourishment from him. The same way that it exists in in the plant world. That's that same dependence. That if we're ever cut off, that's it. There is no more life, no more spiritual life. So then are we depending on him? In 1 John 2, 6, John writes, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walks. And so he talks about the practical aspect of it. He says, you do. You do. And 1 John 3, 6, he says, whoever abides in him does not sin. So that whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So now he's talking about the quality of the life. It's a life that's lived in righteousness to him. It's a life that's lived pleasing God. Doing what he wants us to do. And later on in chapter 3, 1 John three twenty four, He says, now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he's given us. And so we have the seal of the Holy Spirit that resides in us. So that when, you know, we start to freak out about our, our salvation because, you know, we really messed up big this time and that's it, God's going to be done with us. We forget that that conviction that we have is on account of the Spirit ministering to us the same stupid you messed up. And so then we respond with that appropriate repentance. First John 4.12 says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected in us. Notice what, what John is saying in so many words there. It, 
in that as we abide in Christ and as we're obedient and his love is perfected in us, other people get to see that. We start to be exactly what Jesus says that he is. As people look to him, he says, you know me. He says, you know the Father, just like he told Philip, right? And that's exactly what people should be seeing in each and every one of us. So then, is this kind of a deep relationship with him demonstrated daily? He says that this relationship, then the result is bringing life to the believer. That this is the bread which came down as, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. So that this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread will live forever. So that the person, because they feed on them, because they go and understand that Jesus is the source, that Jesus is the one who gives the eternal life to the one who partakes in his sacrificial death. Okay, So Jesus knows he, he's carefully building on things here. As we go along, sometimes when we hear Jesus speaking in, in the book of John, it sounds r- repetitive, sometimes a little confusing. If you, when you read first John, it sounds very confusing. But th- the uh, things are building upon one upon another. John eleven twenty five says that Jesus, speaking to the woman, says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And again in John fourteen nineteen, he says, a little while longer. And the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live in you so that you will live also. And notice the way that works because he lives in us, because we have that Holy Spirit. So then we have that life guaranteed for the future. Because he's the one who's the author of life and anyone that's devoted to him. There's no other ways, guys. It's not by doing things that we get to get earn brownie points with the Lord or we get, it doesn't work like that. It's by that, Belief in him for salvation and that devoted life that we give to him. That obedience, which is the evidence of that belief. First John 4, 9 says, So then in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. You know, we get to be as near to God as he is to the Father. He says there in verse 57. Because that's how close you get to be. Just like that. And it's this tremendous privilege we have as believers you know, to, to be near to God. And so then, do we hold that with the respect that it's due? You know, is Jesus really our all in all? Or are we letting other things kind of pollute it, distract us, get in the way? Not that the things are necessarily in and of themselves bad, but, you know... This world has a way of just getting in there, doesn't it? Of distracting. And we have to be conscious of that. And that's why he points out in verse 58, he says, I'm better than that manna. That bread that came down from heaven is different from what their fathers had eaten way back when in that wilderness. Because the fact of the matter is that he says they ate it and they still died. That there is nothing life-giving in this physical world. Nothing. People are always chasing after the next thing, aren't they? You know, they want to look younger, be more fit. They want to juice. They want to do whatever, CrossFit, make noise next door, whatever it is that they're doing, (laughs) you know. You know, Jesus is, what he's saying really flies in the face of what most people think about, about God. 
It's saying it's not an act, it's not anything, you know. It goes beyond that. Coming to church doesn't mean a dang thing. It's nice. It's good that you hear the word, but if it doesn't go through you and reside in you, then it's done nothing for you. And that's a that's a that's a reality. You know, you guys have been around for any amount of time. We've seen far too many people come and go and never come back. And it's a painful thing to see this happen time and time again. And it's because the word did not reside in them. And this is exactly what Jesus is getting at here. He says, things in the world, you focus on the wrong thing. This is it. This is the person that eats this bread, he says. They've got life forever. They don't have to worry about things. You know, because... The big thing is taken care of. And when that's taken care of, everything else is secondary. All the other things, they're, they're not quite so big here. And he's saying this, you know, in the, in the synagogue. We, I don't know if he was in a synagogue from the very beginning when he was talking here. But at the very least, he ended up in a synagogue by the end of this. Because this was a lot of people, remember, they did follow him from across the Sea of Galilee. And they were looking for him and really eager to see him do something awesome. But the real question then is, how often do we misunderstand the Lord and what He's saying? How often do we not see things in the way that He is showing us? I think it often happens because we're not focused on the spiritual life. This is exactly what He challenges the uh, disciples with here in verses 60 through 71, where He turns it on then and says, what do you guys think? Notice in verse 60 that the disciples... The only thing that they heard was impossibility when they heard what Jesus was saying. That he talks to them and says, so when they heard, they said, well, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? It's impossible. Can't understand it. Too tough. You know, that word hard is interesting because it does mean something that is hard in, in exactly like in English, but really it's talking about something that is intolerable, something that is offensive. You see, it struck a chord with them deep down so then they, they said well wait a second this this thing this this saying it can't be it, it can't mean what it what i think it means what it sounds like it means Je- wait jesus wants us to identify with death what you know subjugation and not reigning you know as kings and it, when they hear that reality it's a tough thing for them See, why would God tell any person something that would be impossible for them to understand? It doesn't make any sense, does it? And they never stopped to ask themselves that question because they didn't get that far in their thinking. And really what I think it reveals is that they they had a flawed concept of God. This is exactly what Jesus talks about. He challenges their concept of him here in verse 61 when he asks them and says, well, does this offend you? You know, does this... Pose a stumbling block for you. That word offended there in the Greek means is scandalizo, which means to make someone to begin to distrust or to desert somebody that they thought they were going to trust or obey. Basically, to, to fall away. Okay. And so he asked this blunt question, are, are you going to fall away? Does this make you distrust me? That, that's kind of a tough question to ask someone. That's, uh, you know, that's tough. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul wrote that we preach Christ crucified. 
to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. The exact, exact same word, that stumbling block. They hear Jesus and they're like, wait a second. He's not the Messiah. He's not it. The Messiah is supposed to set up a kingdom. He died. And you guys say he rose again. That doesn't make any sense to us. Hmm. You know, but this is where God pushes each and every one of us, right? He pushes us to a point of crisis, doesn't he? A point of decision. And every single person in their life has that decision to make. Multiple times even. Because I'm positive the Lord just pursues people and keeps presenting the gospel there, 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 there. And some people just keep right on. No, 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 no. And so then Jesus asks, uh, challenges them with the situation. What if you saw the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He says, what if I'm not here to set up a kingdom right now like you think I am? What if I'm not here to, set, to lead a rebellion against the Romans? He says, are you going to be okay with that? And they weren't okay with that. You know, this really speaks, uh, uh, has echoes of Acts 1 when he ascends into heaven there before the, uh, the apostles. And then also what he, what he also throws in there, that he's going back to where he came from, you know, further confirmation of the fact that, you know, there was pre-existence, right, with, with Jesus. He was from before because he always has been. You know, a lot of our misunderstandings in God, they arise out of our trying to make God fit our concept of him. When we hear what he says, and, and then we try to make it analogous to something that we understand, but it doesn't fit. When Jesus takes this time to tell us the truth in such a way, he's telling us in that way for very specific reasons, because it explains the totality of what he wants to say. You ever, you ever hear two people talking to each other and one person says something and the other person like only gets one part of it and then the rest of it they ignored and there's just this miscommunication all the time back and forth and back and forth. This happens like if you ever see people talking in, in digital and social media, it's ridiculous. People say things and then they start throwing, the, well, you really said this. Well, no, you really said this. It's like, whoa, okay. Uh, that's how people treat God. In what ways do we do that with him and with what he says? Jesus then in verse 63 directs them uh, and lets them know that if there's understanding, it comes through the Spirit. And if there's life, it comes through the Spirit. He says, so then it is the Spirit who gives life. The Spirit gives life. The spirit, he says, the flesh, it profits nothing. He says, you guys are focused on the wrong thing. He is, of course, talking about the Holy Spirit here. And so that eternal life it is a spiritual attribute. It comes uh, through that power of the Holy Spirit, you know, as we have that seal on us. And he's saying, you know, you guys are focused on all of these other things. It, that, that flesh of prophets, nothing. That's so true, isn't it? It really does nothing for us. Because the disciples here, they really were being carnal. They were only seen and hearing with their human ears. And their focus on that, of course, meant that they missed the entire point. And, I think it really brings to mind for me the idea that as believers, we are totally capable of missing the point if we're not living as we should. Because then it influences all the things that we hear, doesn't it? We hear things wrong. We hear what we want to hear. And that's one of the fruits, so to speak, of being carnal. Those Jesus' words, 
He says, my words are spirit in their life. He says, the words I speak to you, they are spiritual and they're life-giving so that they don't originate in the flesh because, of course, they do profit. Okay? And, and that they do result in that everlasting life. And so then, by implication, there's no way they could ever understand what Jesus was saying with any human understanding. He says, you guys, you have to have the spirit in you to understand. You have to see things spiritually. I'm not talking about eating my flesh, literally, and drinking my blood, literally. It's always amazing when Jesus says things and teaches these parables, and then he comes back and shares things with the disciples. They totally didn't get it. And then he has to correct them and says, no, no, it's like this, it's like this. And this is, this is just like all those other times. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor ventured into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Then he goes on. But God has revealed them to us through his, Holy, through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the, image, the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received him, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You know, Jesus has given them this road map. He's given this road map to understanding here. He's not smacking them down. He's telling them, don't you guys see? The Spirit gives the life. I speak to you words of the Spirit. Understand it that way. And of course, uh, the part we just read was 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 14. But it's a loving thing that Christ does. Notice that Jesus says this despite the knowledge that some of them didn't believe. They did not have that saving faith, is what, he's, what it means there. So that even among the disciples, there were non-believers. So that unbelief, you know, uh, on the part of man, it, it really just, it, it neuters any power that the Word of God has. Because that power is there and resides there when man grabs a hold of it, and understands it and believes it, and devotes themselves to, and devotes himself to it. See, some of, some of these disciples weren't spiritual in the least. And Jesus knew where they were at. He even tells us here that Jesus knew all their hearts from the very beginning. He even knew who would betray him. He knew Jesus, uh, Judas. And, you know, it's a quite a sobering thing to think about that. That all this time, Jesus knew. All this time. What a gracious God to bear with him so long, all the way to the end. What a hopeful God. And a loving God to do that. That's beyond what I would ever do. You know, we all have our limits. For some of you guys, it's really far. For the rest of us, not so much. As he says then, that he reiterates in verse 65, the idea that it's the Father that draws them to Jesus. And he says, therefore, so because of this, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. So that no one can come to him Unless it, like he says, that same idea, drawn. Okay. So then if it was true for 
everyone else who heard, he's reminding them, it's true for you guys too, that you know the Father and you're drawn to me because of that. Then the reality is that, is that unbelief, guys, that's the natural state of man. We don't have this faith in God that is naturally occurring. Now, there are things in the world that testify of him, yes. And talk about that in Romans chapter 1 and all that stuff. But we are in a state of unbelief. We are in a state of rebellion, naturally. But when one who comes to him as he's drawn by the word of God shows that belief, that transforms then into abiding faithful then, then that's when the magic happens, huh? And that's when the Lord does his thing. You know, I think of... um. The guy who came to Jesus in Mark 9, and he's asking him about, you know, healing his daughter. And in, in Mark 9, 24, remember Jesus told him, well, you know, if you believe and you have enough faith, then, you know, it can happen. And he says, he says, Lord, help my unbelief. And I, I think if any of these people at this point that are just uh, are about to leave him would have just said, Lord, I believe, help me to believe. The Lord would have met them. The Lord totally would have met them. Because that's the kind of a God that we serve. But notice, they went to the opposite end. They concluded that this isn't what they wanted. This isn't what they needed. This wasn't for them. So it says they left. It says many disciples departed from him. They didn't walk with him anymore. Because the truth offends. Because we know that Jesus' word, it divides, right? It divides down to the marrow, doesn't it? And the bone. Then they didn't agree with the truth. And this is a tough thing. A lot of people show up in churches and they don't come to Christ. A lot of people sit in churches for a long time and they don't come to Christ. I mean, we all have, we have friends who have been coming to church for a long time. And the, they'll, they'll say, yeah, I got saved, you know, at this time. We're like, hey, well, you've been coming to church these many years. Like, I know. <laughs> the entire time sitting there, you know, hearing it all the time. And they didn't ever get saved. And you know, once they get saved, they'll be honest about that. They'll be like, oh, you know, I was just playing around. I just figured it was nice. You guys, you know, like to eat in nice places or whatever it was. So then, the truth, it's imperative that we're presenting this truth in a clear way. That we're not mincing words. See, we don't try to sell people on Jesus. We tell people who Jesus is. We don't use gimmicks. You know, the thing, even the things that we do here at the concert isn't a gimmick. It makes people a little more amenable, but then, you know, you hit them over the head with the gospel. <laughs> you let them know, hey, this is, this is it. Notice, though, the apostles, they cling to the only thing they can, their faith here. So Jesus turns to me and tells them, you know, what do you guys think? He gave them a chance. You know, are you guys going to leave too? And, and Peter wouldn't take that chance. Rather, uh, Peter says, you're it. You're all we know. And it's interesting the way Peter says, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, Peter doesn't demonstrate that he understands everything Jesus said. He doesn't say that at all. But what he does know is that he knows that Jesus' words bring life and he's going to hang his head on that. He says, I know I want eternal life. I know you got it. So I'm going to keep close to you because I trust in you. And notice he even confesses his knowledge and their knowledge of who, the, who Jesus is. He says, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So then he understands you're the Messiah. 
You know, we, we've believed it. He says, and we've been convinced of this kind of the way he's talking about it here. Everything they've seen has brought them to this understanding. And if this is what they understand, they're going to hold on to it. You know, sometimes we're reading or we're listening to studies or we're studying and we don't really understand something in its totality or really kind of fries our brain. That's okay. We hold on to what we know because we know him. We know who he is. So then if something seems kind of out of whack or difficult to wrestle with, we're going to be okay with that because we know the faithfulness of the God that we serve and we take it to him in prayer. You know, we go and we look into the word more and we see what the Lord has and the Lord will speak. The Lord will make things clear because the Lord does not desire that we, you know, live in a fog. And so he, he understood a pretty profound thing here. Now, it bears saying that this is uh, different from when he confesses Jesus. He says, you know, blessed are you, Simon of Bar-Jonah, because, you know, you didn't come to this out of your own resources, but the Lord told you this, the Father, and that through the Spirit. And this is different from that time, okay? So then... Multiple times then that Simon kind of got the chance, I guess, to show off a little bit. But, you know, that, that he was able to confess this truth. But, of course, we know that not all had this same faith. Jesus says as much when he says, hey, I chose you guys all. But he says, but one of you is a devil. You know, one of you is in, will be in opposition, is in opposition to the cause of God. And that word, you know, for, for, for devil there, it's only used for three different times um, in the New Testament, and it's used often of Satan. And he's equating Judas to that and what he's going to do. And it's, it's always a, a dose of reality, you know, to think that not everybody who is in any church service is all about what the rest of us are all about or what we hope the rest of us are all about, you know being here seeking God, but it's the reality of things. You know, it's something that we try to share often with, with your kids over in the youth ministry that not everyone is a Christian that shows up at church. And so then we have to be wise as believers. We have to understand that. You know, we have to go, go to the Lord for that wisdom and that uh, discernment because, you know, he's the bread of life. Yeah. You know, Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love and goodness. We thank you that, Lord, you're our sufficiency, Lord. And it's a, a blessed thing, Lord, that we don't have to handle things on our own. We thank you for your graciousness and, and the body of believers that you bless us with here. And we get to fellowship with, with people who are headed in the same direction. Thank you for that encouragement and that, uh, that fellowship we have. We pray for the rest of the evening that you'd uh, bless us as we head home and Lord, that the word would take root in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>